I'm so ashamed of myself. No, it's okay. <laughs> okay, as you guys know, we normally start this podcast, and this is my second take. Um, we have a special guest, Roger Keeles. This time I got it right. <laughs> he didn't have to do that, by the way. He didn't have to say, this is my second take. Listen, I'm, I'm transparent. There's okay? no stenographer, like, around the corner writing what you I say. Didn't, I didn't bring a court reporter with me today, Troy. Now I'm feeling judged. <laughs> but it's okay. Uh, guys, welcome to the Till Good Game Duo's part. Uh, if you guys haven't heard my voice in about two months, uh, but I'm Henry and Troy's here. You know, it's been longer than two months. It's been probably been, yeah, yeah. You've recorded a podcast without me, so it's okay. <laughs> I mean, you're welcome. Yeah, probably. So, um, thanks for having me, guys. Our guest is. How, do you prefer? Is a, is there a difference between a lawyer and attorney? Um, we refer to ourselves as attorneys, lawyers, just kind of more of like the layman term. Gotcha. Um, but realistically, it's no different. Okay. So we have an attorney with us here today as our guest, and we're going to talk about esports, the law, and his background with esports and video games in general. Um, so I'm going to start off with the most blatant question. Mm -hmm. What got you into law? Um, funny story, I think I was four at the time, um, I had, I was, my dad was watching a movie and um, I had, you know, waddled into the room as four-year-olds do and um, there was a guy in the movie who was driving like a cherry red Lamborghini and um, I was like, that's a really nice car and my dad was like, well, he's a lawyer, if you're a lawyer, you can drive a car like that. So that was the first time my dad lied to me. Um, but nonetheless, it, it kind of like put me on a path. And like I had, um, I always had kind of just like as a kid had said that I wanted to be a lawyer because I just kind of kept with that. And then it wasn't really until college that I did mock trial, um, which is oddly enough even where I met my wife, who's not a lawyer, thank God. Um, and I kind of just started falling in love with it and took it from there. So from there, I went to law school. Uh, after law school, graduated, took the bar. Here we are. At what point did you realize like your dad lied to you? Like, about, <laughs> hey, like about that red about, car. About the red car? Yeah. Very early on. Um, <laughs> did, yeah. you, did you confront him about it? Were you like... Every day. <laughs> you you yeah. lied to me. Now, you know what it is, is... Um, Obviously, like there are those attorneys, and, and there's certainly a very broad spectrum in terms of of what attorneys do, in terms of what attorneys make for a living, and so on. And the things that you would have to do, and the work that you would have to do, and the type of clients you would have to have, and the type of life you would have to have um, to get that is really just so not me. So even though I realized pretty early on and probably high school-ish that like, yeah, that's not a real thing or, or it's movie magic, so to speak. Yeah. I think also a lot of time it depends on it's, it's always like you have these plans and then life happens. Right, exactly. That, you know, you met your wife, you know, you, right. you, you have a baby and it's mm -hmm. like, it, it's almost like it's not fit to have the, yeah. the fancy cherry red car. Listen, I, I would like to see my house <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to just, you know, sleeping at the desk every day. And... Um, yeah, I think it's 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 certainly a lot of fun. Do you still have dreams or nightmares about getting that red car? Oh no, I mean, look, <laughs> at the end of the day, like I'm I'm very much, uh, I'm very much an entrepreneur. I'm very much a hustler. Um, so in my mind, that cherry red Lambo will happen. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a matter of like 
doing it the way I want to do it to be able to get there, as opposed to taking the quote-unquote shortcut of you know selling my soul to the corporate law firm, which that's just not me. Gotcha. So when you first started out, you started off in sports law, correct? Mm-hmm. Where? Well, no. So I started out my practice doing sports and business work. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started out as an attorney, um, I was actually working for a judge downtown in downtown Brooklyn. And then I went from there to a small commercial litigation firm, uh, basically doing like breach of contract lawsuits and everything else. And then left that, started my own practice where I was doing like sports and business work. Okay. So what was the transition from like sports law into esports law? It was relatively simple. Um, so at the time, this was 2014. Started my practice on Cinco de Mayo, 2014. Um, yeah, I had to remember the date. That was just an easy one. Um, and at the time, I had a, I had some contacts that were you know, NCAA athletes that were you know just looking to start businesses, but you know keep their keep themselves away from the long arm of the NCAA. Um, so it was a lot of like compliance stuff with respect to that. Uh, on the business side, it was you know startups was, you know, hey, I have, you know, I'm a mom and pop business, uh, we're photographers, or we're starting up this company and we need to get our contract straight and everything else. Um, so lo and behold, about five months after I started the practice, I had an article come across one of my social media timelines about a League of Legends player in Europe that was getting just completely railroaded by his team, and that just kind of started the wheels turning. Um, I had always known of what I then found out was termed esports. Um, I had always known of it as, as people playing StarCraft in Korea, because I played a lot of StarCraft growing up, um, but never really knew that it had expanded beyond that. So that was just like kind of eye-opening to me back then. And um, I started doing a lot of digging and doing a lot of research. That led to networking. Networking led to, hey, these, pro- these people are facing all the same problems that I've been dealing with in other contexts because basically the sports stuff as well as the as startup stuff was basically was just completely blended together into what esports was uh, at the time, and um, so the transition was really simple. You know, it was a lot of very similar work already. I definitely had to learn more of uh, the esports ropes, so to speak, at the time. Um, just getting, just familiarizing myself with like league structures, games, uh, different rules involved, and so on and so forth, just to really get up to speed and say, okay, these are the various issues presented. These are the things that we need to address. These are the things that we haven't yet crossed. These are the roads we haven't yet crossed, but we're getting there. So let's start, you know, trying to protect ourselves from any sort of future issues, you know, and then kind of growing that along. Okay. So besides like. Besides, of course, like these, the the very similar people who do sports and esports. What were the like big differences between like esports law? Was it like was there a different in ego? Was there a different? Was there just like bigger road bumps in esports because you had less resources? Or the biggest the biggest difference is is history, right? So in terms of sports, you're dealing with a hundred plus years of an established of established businesses and practices and even regulation. Um, esports didn't have obviously nearly that much, so there's a lot to lean on in doing sports work. 
Whereas with respect to esports, it's it's a little bit of a hodgepodge, right? Like it's not quite sports, it's not quite entertainment, it's not quite media. Well, what is it? It's it's its own thing. So there are things that we can pull from all of these different elements, but we need to find a way to make them fit together. And that's really where you know people like myself fit in, is saying like, look, this is indus. We're applying law, existing law, to industry-based knowledge more so than anything else. Um, Aside from that, you know, your, your league structures are completely different. Your power dynamics are vastly different in terms of like player, team, league. Um, here you also have the lovely addition of having a developer right. involved, which you wouldn't have in traditional sports. So that also is a serious monkey wrench into that power dynamic equation. Um, so definitely some significant differences. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to, you know, player and team, it's very similar. Um, especially, I would say, when I first came into this space, the, so way back now, tail end of 2014, um, it looked like, or it felt like what I had known of basically pre-unionization baseball, right? So like 1960s, sort of right on the cusp of uh, the Curt Flood Act and, and pressing that issue to the Supreme Court. Um, the, we've since... For, we've been fortunate enough to have games as an industry without having to go through many of the, without having to clear many of the same hurdles that traditional sports has, um, and that's part that's part of how we've been able to grow so rapidly. Uh, but at the same, to the same extent, you know, we do still have our hangups, we still have our issues, and things that we need to to work on as a space. With with uh, you mentioning like traditional sports not having a developer and games having it what you said you, you know they throw a monkey wrench into mm -hmm. uh the, the law of it what can you expand on that a bit more like sure what exactly can do they like prevent you from doing or even you know allow you to do so the key difference between traditional sports and esports is the fact that no one owns a sport Right? No one owns baseball. That's what allows baseball to be played in North America, Korea, Caribbean, Latin America, Taiwan, Japan, and all have very separate leagues that owe no allegiance to, they don't owe allegiance to any higher body. Because esports is, it involves playing video games, a video game is inherently owned by the developer. It is their intellectual property. As a result, Anyone, if anyone wanted to play that game, whether it be competitively, whether it be creating a league, anything else, that because it's owned, they then have to go to the owner, being the developer, to obtain a license to put forward that league or put forward that event. And that's a huge difference because realistically then, it allows the developer to control how everyone is going to interact with that game, how they're going to put on events for that game, Every single aspect um, that flows out of that um, out of that esports arm from the developer itself, the developer has control over to a certain degree. Now, certain developers take a much more rigid approach to that and saying, like, no, if you're going to do an event, it has to be like X, Y, Z. You know, these are the prize limitations that you have, um, or this is what the minimum prize is. On and on and on. Versus other developers who are much more hands off and say, like, yeah, you want to do an event? That's great. Here, go. How do you feel that sometimes, in, in a sense, developers almost in a way like shape 
who like their teams who's better and who's worse because if you look at even like the Overwatch League and how they're always changing the meta and stuff like that and mm-hmm. how one team can go from being like the best to being like the worst right do you do you feel that like because that's something you don't really see in sports I mean it's to a sense that's like okay you I get mean, all these players and stuff the, like that but no one's like out there essentially changing how the game is played so we have had relatively similar instances in sports uh, but very very few and certainly not to the same frequency that you have with esports right like major league baseball is not patching its game every through every yeah. you know every month but uh, but we have had instances where you know aspects of the game have fundamentally changed right we had the lowering of the mound in baseball which took um, i believe it was Juan Marichal uh, or another elite pitcher at the time who went from you know, essentially an awesome season to a crap season the next year, just based on you know that that singular change, um, or heavily heavily involved in that singular change. So it is problematic in the sense that if you are creating an organization or running an organization, you know you are inherently your team comps are inherently going to be impacted by patching or or even just further developments to the game or Overwatch two. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. but, um, but realistically, you know, that's kind of par for the course. And now if you're getting involved in esports, you know that's coming. So the only thing that you can do to really hedge against that is try and build something that's going to be very flexible. Um, be it if you start at the top with respect to your coaching and having coaches and staff that can, um, that can be flexible and recognize these changes as they're coming and see what changes need to be made as a result and then be able to coach up the players to fill in those new gaps created or have a roster even that is big enough and broad enough to be able to play a, play a bunch of different metas. Um, I mean, obviously, most players aren't flexible or there's a, depending on the game, um, there it can be very difficult for players to, you know, fit in as well as they feel they should based on how the meta shifts, right? And we can't expect every player to be able to play every single meta. Like, that just doesn't make sense. So we either, you know, you either need to have a, a roster that can be broad enough that you can plug and play effectively and or, you know, a coaching staff that can be able to really adjust towards the newly created weaknesses. Going back to... Um you know, you you're scrolling your social media and you see the player who's having his issue, legal issues with uh, his League of Legends teams. How did you go about like, I guess, pro- like going through that process and contacting that player? Since you know you're being based out of New York and they're in Europe, like, what big differences did you have to like consider going into that? Sure. So I didn't contact that player. Um, what I had did was that was just sort of a a light bulb moment for me of just, I need to know what the hell's going on in this space because I've always played games and I've always known about this competitive scene, but I didn't know that it was now becoming something bigger and something else. Um, so what I did was, at first I just kind of took a step back and I said, all right, well, what are all the games being played? And then I said, okay, let's look up, let's see what info we can find about the various leagues going on. Fortunately, some leagues even post their rules. So then it's going through the rules and seeing what's what. Um, you know, it's also saying, all right, who's in, you, who's, you know, in New York City that even like, that, that is involved in this space and someone that would just be willing to, to chat so I can learn more. 
Um, I never got myself involved in that situation, and, oh. and, and realistically, attorneys are not allowed to involve themselves in situations like that because it's considered ambulance chasing. Gotcha. But, um, but when it comes to that particular matter, it was just a really interesting sort of like case study for me. Uh, to, to just watch as it unfolded, see what was happening, see how things got handled, um, which, spoiler, it was a complete mess, and it just got worse. Um, but it taught me a lot about the dynamics involved in the space at that time, and then that helped shape some of the conversations I was having on my own with other people that were involved in the space, either directly or tangentially, to... Um, to really help shape my knowledge before I said, you know what, let's let's see what happens and let's let's see if we can work help with some people in the space. Okay. Um, what was your first like? This is not this is out. This is a question outside of law. Sure. What was your first video game experience? Like, do you remember it vividly? Um, I remember one of my earliest memories was sitting down on the living room floor watching my dad play uh, Legend of Zelda and Tiger Heli on Nintendo. And me trying and dying very, very often. Um, but I think it was around like, I want to say maybe like three, four at the time, um, back when my dad used to play games. And um, yeah, that, that was easily my, my earliest experience. Were, were, was your dad like, uh, I guess, supportive of you playing games or was it kind of like a, you know, you get an hour every night kind of thing and Oh, no, I mean, it was never really any issue, you know. He had played his Nintendo, which then became my Nintendo. Um, he stopped playing around Sonic because it just got too fast for him. Um, he, was like, he was like, Dad, I'm going to be an attorney. It's fine. I got this. It's fine. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I, 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 my parents always really emphasized um, my schoolwork and homework and everything else. So, you know, as long as I took care of everything I needed to, you know, they never had any issue with me playing games. Um, so, you know, it went from that Nintendo to a Game Boy to a Sega, Sega to a 32X and a Sega CD to PlayStation and N6, no, N64 first, then PlayStation, then PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, PlayStation 4, and so on. Were there any titles that had like a, a major impact for you, like that you can remember growing up? My favorite game growing up was Super Mario 3 played a hell of a lot of that. Um, that also kind of came out around the time where I wasn't absolute garbage at games anymore. So I was probably like five-ish, five, six. Um, and that was fun. Um, that also was one of the earliest like two-player games that I remember. Um, that one definitely holds a, a place for me. So this kind of made me think of something. So you were just talking about how, like, you're, you know, when I was five, six, I was still good at games. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about, or what is your take on what what esports players should be doing post gaming? Because like Troy and I have talked about this a lot. I'm I'm very much into like just franchise yourself. You know, you see Ninja out there, he's got pants, he's got shirts, <laughs> he's got this, he's got a Fortnite skin now. Mm -hmm. What do you? How do you feel like? What is the best like way to not a like keep kind of this a steady income? Be happy with what you're doing and still be involved in gaming. Like, what is that in your in a, your dream scenario? What would be like the path that you would like recommend to an esports player? Realistically, it depends on what they want to do, right? You know, every player is different. Some want to stay attached to the games, some don't. Um, I've had players with college degrees who left the game and went and worked 
in the industry furthest possibly away from esports. I have others that have gotten involved with their organizations in one capacity or another, whether as you know staff or an analyst or coaching. Um, there's certainly a lot of experience that they've gotten, especially in the continued professionalization of the space, that um, is valuable, and especially if they want to stay around the game. I mean, we've seen now players go to uh, what we've traditionally looked at as sponsors and been sort of gaming reps for them, but working for them, working for the company as opposed to just streaming on their own and right. being sponsored by them. Um, and I think that insight at every level is helpful, right? Because that player working for the sponsor can say, "Hey, this is what players care about when they're looking at a when they're you know testing out a mouse or a keyboard." Um, as a, and this is what we care about in terms of sponsorships. This is what we like. This is what we don't like. This is what we want to do. This is what we don't want to do. Um, so you know, it really just depends on, on who they are as a person. You know, it, all the players that I've worked with in a close capacity, you know, that's been an ongoing conversation. You know, and sort of gauging where they're at in their career, when they feel they'll hang up the mouse, and how we can start preparing them for that transition outwards. Um, some will say, you know what, I want to just start streaming more and build that up and see if I can just stream. That works for some, but it's a very different animal. Um, I don't think streaming's for everyone. I don't think everyone can become ninja. Um, the it's it's really personality dependent, you know, and really um, dependent on what their what their interests are. I mean, I mean, you also like if you like personality, like you take Tony Romo when he retired from the Cowboys, and now he's an analyst, and everyone's like, right. I hated him on the Cowboys, <laughs> but he's, he's fantastic really good at the analyst. desk. Yeah. So, so you're Absolutely. right. It's definitely all about the personality. Yeah. How do you? Sorry. Oh no! That, I was going to say your question led or your answer uh, led to a great segue for a question that I have is. Are esports org organizations talent agencies or are they just like team organizations? Because we have like the whole issue with like <laughs> Tifu. Yeah. When I messaged you about like, hey, why are they moving this case from you know LA to New York when they're not even based out of there but they're registered there? So like, from your uh, I guess standpoint, how do you view them? Are they talent agencies or are they just like team organizations? Esports organizations are teams. Are, are there sports teams? They're also oftentimes separately media bodies, media entities. Um, as far as talent agency goes, uh, not really. Um, I think certainly, you know, we've had years ago and, and way less common now situations like the Tifu one where you have um, teams that were actively looking for deals to, to work their players into. And you know, players potentially getting a cut of that, that creates a very, very fuzzy situation as to whether or not they constitute a talent agency or what. Um, and then even that might change based on state law and where they're particularly looking. Um, it's, I'm of the opinion that there's really no benefit there, right? You know, the team has, does not have your best interest as a player or an individual at heart when it comes to these things, you know, you as a player or as a content creator should have your own separate representation that's doing that stuff for you. Um, assuming you're in a place also that can have that stuff, right? You know, depending on your, your numbers and your metrics. But um, yeah, I, I don't see teams as being 
talent agencies, and nor should they be, and nor play, nor should players or streamers want them to be. I think I think it's also like um, because then if you start saying that people that uh, these teams are talent agencies, then you're getting to what like music, like what record companies and stuff like that, where they start grooming their 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 artists and stuff like that. And I don't think you want to groom your players. In a way, you do to be like good on like media and like good in interviews and stuff like that, but not to like put an image out for other people to see. You you want your player to be the most them that they can be without, for lack of a, for, without being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, there is something to be said about media training, right? Because I think there is a healthy amount of that that needs to be done, um, and there's a way to maintain that and not just be, you know using the same sort of cliches that you get after every game it, when that we see now in traditional sports. There's a fine line, there's a happy medium somewhere in there. Adam in the we first half, not gonna lie. We, yeah. <laughs> we, we haven't quite seen it yet, but, um, but it's, it's definitely needed. Right? Who, who do you think needs more media training? Twitch streamers, or rather just streamers in general, or esports players? They're one and the same. Are they though? No, they're not one Thank and the you. same. Thank Nowhere you. Nowhere close. And even Twitch streamers aren't the same as Mixer streamers or Facebook streamers. Hot take. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. That, actually, that's not a hot take. Yeah, it, it's really true. I, it, I've been to a couple of Facebook gaming streams, and they they always seem a little little more just just a little chiller. <laughs> it's it's they're very different groups and very different communities. They all fundamentally do the same thing. They just go about it very differently, but. Um, as far as who needs it more, I would say it's more important for the streamer to have it just because their entire business is consumer facing. It's their you face. Know, exactly. You know, so if they're going to be interacting with the community and the public much more so than the players are, it's going to be way more important for them to have you know, really, really heavy sort of media training on that. Yeah, because people don't watch streamers anymore because they're good. At, I mean, sometimes, but most of the time, it's it's a form of entertainment. It's right. a form of almost, in a very weird, lonely sense, companionship. Like eleven thirty at night, you're alone. You're just kind of just like I'm gonna listen to this person talk for a while, <laughs> as someone's listening to our voices talk about esports. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's whenever you're. Whenever you're you're very very public facing, I think it's going to be critical that you're not that you're you're on brand, that you're not you know, like walking off into hot takes over and over and over again if that's not your brand. Um, so it it's it's just crafting the complete sort of persona, do you, right? Do you think those hot take moments though are are, are planned hot take moments? Do you think they're just oh like they have somebody behind the scenes always looking to be like, this. I just want you to say this and just it's gonna it's gonna take off. You're gonna be trending. <laughs> Do you think that that's a thing? I mean, yes and no, right? Like it's it's less so about you know saying hey we want to say Fortnite sucks today, um, and more so about just understanding what your community likes and dislikes, right? Because if you know what your community likes, then you can continue to feed them what they like and grow the brand. And if there's something that you can do that you can say, hey, this will gather a lot of the correct kind of attention that we're looking for, you know, then that's something that can be worked in there. But, but that's why I also say like, when it comes to streaming, especially because of how forward-facing that it is, this isn't something that you can really just go into blind and just say, fuck it, I'm gonna throw on a stream today and see what happens. Like it is, 
the smart way to do it is to craft an entire sort of narrative around it. You know, knowing who you are as a as a streamer, which may not necessarily align with who you are as an individual. Um, you know, you plan it out much in the same way that you you would plan out any traditional broadcast. You know, there'll be games played in between, and there'll be you know opportunities to be, you know, to have those those spur of the moment things, but it's not just completely by the seat of your pants. Um, so going back to you saying you being aware of like StarCraft being you know mm -hmm. an esport in Korea, um, doing your case studies or studying esports, are there any legal practices that you notice that have transitioned from uh, you know Korean esports to being a part of global esports or even just in the U.S.? What do you mean? Uh, just like like the way teams are handled in Korea or uh, how players may be handled. Any is are there any like legal things that you know? The the rest of the world picked up from Korea with the growth growth of esports, like legally wise. Um, I would say Korea handles things very differently. Uh, they're way more regulated than we are, for better or worse. Uh, Lord knows, Kespa has had plenty of issues. Um, I think what's what's good about Korea, especially early on, was it gave us a model. Um, we took some from that model, we took some from our traditional sports model, and we've kind of created hybrids of both. Um, realistically, I think right now, if you look at most major esports regions, you see relatively unique models. Um, even, if a, even if a league structure is somewhat similar, the sort of team structure varies, and then how the team compositions vary, and so on. And you even see just methods of playing the same game be completely different, just out of the, the culture that kind of creates these, these play styles. So, and which is awesome to see, because as interconnected as the industry is, you don't want to necessarily dilute what makes that region unique. Um, and I think that's something that I'm glad to see, at least thus far, you know, we've been able to really hold on to um, in the, you know, increasingly interconnected esports world. Okay, gotcha. Um, with the growth of esports, at least like, speaking within like the last five years, um, have you seen or noticed an increase of uh, player agents? Oh yeah, absolutely. Everyone and their mother right now is a player agent. <laughs> He got me. He stopped me. I thought I could, I thought I could follow up and be like, no, like the real ones, but it just... I mean, it, the, the difference is, is, is there's a lot of people right now that call themselves player agents. Mm -hmm. There are not a lot of people that are licensed to do so. There are not a lot of people that, whether licensed or not, should be doing so. Um, it's largely a space right now with very little regulation. Um, but it's something that we're going to have to pay more attention to, both you know at every level, as a community, at the player level, at the league level, at even potentially a regional level. Um, obviously, you know we need to protect the talent, oftentimes even from the people that are purporting to assist talent, because. The wrong sort of the wrong sort of person that that says, "Hey, I can help," you know, can really cause a lot of damage if they um, if they're not doing the right things. Are there 
are there proper steps that someone could take, let's say, like outside of traditional schooling to become like a specialized esports agent? Like someone who's just like, you know, they might have been a player or, uh, you know, someone that's like, I really love esports, but I suck at the game, so I don't want to play it, but I want to be a part of it. Like, maybe I'll be an agent. Are there like proper steps that they can take to study to be like, this is what I want to do? I think realistically, you need to have a really deep understanding of not only connection, well, you need to have a really deep understanding of how the space works, first and foremost. Um, you'll also need connections. You'll also need a fundamental understanding as to how player contracts work and many of the ins and outs and how flexible those actually are. And that's why you see, that's why you tend to see more attorneys be effective agents than not. Um, because of the fact that we don't have standardized contracts, it's something that means we can get really, really, really creative with. Um, but you need to know how to get creative with contracts. And that's, that's where sort of the schooling comes into play, as well as just the real life experience. Um, because if you, know, you show five people a contract and two of them are lawyers, you know, the two attorneys may have uh, various different ways or offer structures or anything else that they can come up with, whereas the other three may just be looking to try and you know, edit that document itself. With, with everyone and their mother wanting to be the esports agents, is, is, this, is that a reason why we might see players uh, you know, signing to uh, talent agencies more because they feel like they're more protected within that agency from like outside people? Um, with respect to, I think players are signing with talent agents more so now because they're starting to understand that they themselves are brands and that they need help, um, whether it be, you know, more often than not, you know, the agent's role really isn't in like offer acquisition. It's m like mostly or most heavily going to be involved in getting the deal, working the deal and getting the deal to a point that it's something comfortable that your client wants. Um, it's something that you're definitely going to see more of and you're going to continue to see more of. You know, it's no different than, you know, how athletes gravitated towards having talent agents as well. You know, as, they, as, as their space professionalized and they started realizing there's more at stake, then it's saying, all right, it feels worth it for me now to have someone help so a big so a big thing on my mind you mentioned ncaa mm -hmm. and uh and players and you know trying to see what they can get away with and stuff um it made me it, it mostly made me think of uh, a, a television show where it's just an episode about him he's being like a not an agent but he's just being the in-between regulating person and he's getting them like free cars and stuff like that. What is kind of the, and, and that's what I really want to ask you, what is the biggest sort of blunder you've seen a player make? No names, obviously, but like a, either in sports or in sports. Say a name. Don't say <laughs> a name. <laughs> like, have you seen someone been like, you know? Um, okay, well, I can, my, a significant blunder of sorts on the sports side that just happened, uh, which he's would say he's an Astros. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Oh, I thought you were saying the Astros. I think I read no, the article he's referring to. Not even that. Um, but realistically, we saw after the uh, the collegiate NCAA title game for football where Odell Beckham was walking around the locker room and shaking people's hands with $100 bills in it. 
and uh, allegedly the money was fake. Allegedly it was real. Certainly if it's real, that's all sorts of NCAA violations for the program <laughs> as well as the athletes. Um, that just reeked of like, you should know better. What the hell are you doing? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a Jets fan, so. Remember when Flexible Burr shot his foot? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that was certainly uh, a, a head-scratching moment. Uh, on the eSports side of things, and this was quite some time ago, um, I it was a player I was assisting who, prior to me working with him, had been convinced by the team that there were all sorts of things that all sorts of documents that he had to sign that were far above and beyond his contract that made that basically were all contracts unto themselves where the player would then be giving back certain things from his contract and so on and so forth that he had they really didn't have any any sort of reason to do so other than just being greedy and um the player at the time, not knowing any better, did it. And that was a fight and a half, uh, just as a means of, of extricating that player from that situation. Um, but it's something of, like, look, you know, at the time it was largely a space where the player mentality at the time was very much so, um, look, I'm just happy to play games and get paid for it. And, um, you know, I didn't necessarily think that this would be a problem. Or, you know, they told me this would be fine. Or just, you know, misplaced trust. Where do you think that sort of that dream of, like, I'm, I'm getting paid to play video games started? Do you think it started, like, not even in gaming? Do you think some, because a lot of people say, like, that whole idea of I'm making entertainment and I'm making money off of it kind of started with, like, YouTube. Like, it's like the internet money sort of trend started. Do you think that's where it started? Do you think sort of, like, Twitch coming in or, like, being like, hey, you can get paid for this? Like, where do you think that sort of started? Um, and when hard do you think, to say. And I was like, when do you think it turned a little toxic? <laughs> <laughs> really hard to say. I mean, gaming's been toxic forever. Like that's, it's always been toxic. I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, you're yelling at your screen by yourself. That's and, yeah. and calling your own screen like a bitch, and it's like or your best friend toxic. if you're playing Halo too. I mean, yeah. Yeah, or your best friend if he's you know mind controls your SCV and then. <laughs> takes off and builds Terran on the other corner of your map. Um, That's a deep cut. Yeah, that is a deep cut. um, Especially in No Rush 20. Then you got to fight off two races. There's somebody besides me listening right now who's like, I got that. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah, really hard to say as to, like, when, when, I guess there's sort of, like, the light bulb moment of, like, hey, I can make money playing video games. It probably was YouTube. Um, I mean, Lord knows we've had, even prior to the, the YouTube boon, we had Quake tournaments going on for forever. Um, that, although that was relatively niche. Um, I, uh, yeah, it's probably started with like the YouTube boom and, and those channels growing and people seeing, hey, I can make all this money off of a YouTube channel and then just going from there. And now you don't make any. <laughs> oh, you gotta, yeah. or everything's yeah. copyright strike on your videos. Exactly. Where, where those like when you see like those one-sided contracts, um, usually in the the organization's favor, are they usually like like bulletproof from the the organization side, or do you usually tend to find like 
an easy loophole where you're kind of like, oh, well, you fucked up here. We can just use this against you guys in favor of the player. Um, I will say that I've still yet to see a bulletproof esports player contract. Point blank. Um, I mean, there's an argument that no contract unto itself ever is bulletproof. But um, when it comes to actually negotiating the contract from inception, generally speaking, you're going to try and, and carve out the things that you want, uh, be it, whether it be protections, whether it be um, added incentives for the player, whether it be increases here or there with relevant percentages or anything else. Um, sometimes there may be things that are questionably legal in contracts that um, even if you try to address it, the organization says, well, my lawyer put it in there and I'm going to trust him, so I'm going to just leave it there. And like, I understand that it may not necessarily be held up if we ever took this to court, but I'm going to leave it there for now. Now, to me, that says, okay, I know to an extent I at least have a card to play down the road if there's ever any sort of issue. Beyond that, there are other, there's, there's a consistent issue that, depending on the relationship, may, may work. It can work a lot, um, just in terms of worker classification, because a lot of esports player contracts are built around um, independent contractor relationships. Yet then, when it, even, if it, even if the contract reads okay, the, when it comes to actually working for the organization, it then becomes a much closer relationship, very similar to that of an employee. Um, that unto itself becomes another card that can be played, as long as the, the, the relevant legal tests sort of fit the situation. Um, just in terms of saying like this player was misclassified as an independent contractor, as opposed to being an employee. And, and the, realistically, the reasoning why a lot of teams do classify their their players as independent contractors still is just simply a cost, just simply because of cost, right? Employees are way more expensive. You know, there's benefits, there's payroll taxes, there's a lot of overhead that has to go into managing that relationship even just on the back end. So if you're a new organization who says, you know what, I don't want to really deal with this, rightly or wrongly, a lot of people are terming their players as ICs. Do you think within the next, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say two to three years, we will see that change where they'll actually start considering players employees? Well, I think I think you kind of already see that with like the Overwatch League. Like all their players have salaries, health like healthcare benefits, and they're considered employees of quote unquote the Overwatch League, which is owned by Blizzard. But so they're not employees of Overwatch League. They're employees of they're employees of the organizations that they're that they oh. play for. So what uh, what Owl That's did? Why we brought him on. What Owl did <laughs> was Owl required all of its franchisees to have employment relationships with their players. So um, because realistically, Blizzard doesn't want that liability anyway. Right. You know, so they're saying no, no, no. You guys just have to so have employee that was contracts with them. It wasn't even a loophole. It was just a requirement at the outset, right? It was just like, hey, if you're going to be a franchisee um, and have an Owl franchise, then you need to have. X, Y, and Z in your contracts. Um, we're going to have standardized contracts, at least 80% of which, and then the back end, you guys can all change up. 
Um, that way it creates more of an even playing field. Um, I because, mean, it's, you know, it's like, hey, Robert Kraft, you got money, do this. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, but, uh, but I would agree that you do see more of that. You know, Owl's not the only game where you see employee relationships. Um, there are some others now that have, that have had employees. It's just not really ubiquitous across the board. Can, uh, can, we, can we talk about Owl for a second? Sure. So how do you feel you have this, you sort of have this game that, in a sense, not dying. I'm not going to say dying. <laughs> not. I'm not going to say dying. It's not doing as well as it used to. How's that? Is that better? I, they would say otherwise, but yeah. And <laughs> you kind of, you push, you're like, you know what? Season three, <laughs> we're doing localization. How do you how do you feel about that move of localization? Um, it's something that was expected. Right. I mean, they, yeah. that was like their first thing right. they were saying. Um, it's something that I think is critically important to the ongoing future of Owl and whether Owl becomes something that's sustainable. I don't think it's, I don't think there's any question that this year is a huge year, um, at least as far as importance wise goes, for the, for what Owl will continue to be. Um, certainly there's concern about what's been going on at Blizzard. Um, certainly there's concern about what's been going on even with the league. We'll have to wait and see how the chips fall. Um, I know realistically, it's, there's also even been very public concern by, by staff in OWL on Twitter about how players and organizations and everyone are going to handle the constant traveling. Um, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be rough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, I'm not... I'm not are you uh, are you going to be at Hammerstead uh, Ballroom to go watch? <laughs> I'm sure I will at some point. Just uh, walk and be like, oh, cool. <laughs> I'm sure I will at some point. Um, I, I went to um, Owl Finals. Was it season one that they did at, at Barclays? Oh, Barclays. As that was well. actually very nice. It was well done. It was. It's very weird to go to an East. It's very weird for me to go to an esports event and literally just watch two teams. It, it it did feel, it felt different because I've been yeah. to I've been to um like the like Counter Strike at Barclays Center yeah and you go and it feels very different and it feels like a different vibe and you go to you go to Overwatch League and then DJ Khaled is playing and you're like what's happening I don't know what's happening <laughs> <laughs> um, oh I'm still gonna hate that moment <laughs> I, I mean you know what like that that wasn't it for me it was what was weird was it, it I mean it didn't feel like an esports event did it, it feel quick to you quick like yeah oh absolutely it like, was like it was you blinked and it was over yeah like I mean, day two i woke I, we walked in in like an hour and a half, half later, hour yeah i was like oh mm -hmm. okay it's done there's confetti flying on me exactly um but it felt like a sporting event more than anything else um it it just seemed very different which i mean look that's what blizzard was always going for right like the like scoots always loves to say that you know owl termed itself the nfl of esports you go to a football game, you only see two teams play. Sure. You're not going to see everyone else. Um, granted, it's not something that we're necessarily used to, um, but I'm all for innovation and seeing how things work and if things work and, and so on. I would say Owl was the first, for me anyway, to have sort of these like, like when Grand Finals were coming around, they were advertising the playoffs, they had like these like, these commercials of just like the player montages and like the swooping cameras and the music in the background and mm -hmm. all that stuff. and. I was like, wow, oh, that's like, that's like Super Bowl stuff right there. <laughs> do, you, yeah. do you think the org organizations overpaid for those Overwatch League spots? <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, we asked the real questions here. Like, for Owl, 
and Call of Duty. What? <laughs> I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? I mean, I don't have any indication as to what their financials look like or anything else at this point. Um, I know there have been a ton of reports about how the owners aren't thrilled with what's been going on. Um, so for that reason, I'm sure that there's a little bit of second guessing. Um, I think the, the more interesting, not more interesting, but the, the clearer indication to me of, of possibly overpaying was on the COD side of things because Owl, you did, it was a newer game. You didn't have an established, a very long standing established competitive system. No one quite knew what Overwatch Esports would be. Um, with respect to Call of Duty, that's been around for quite some time um, through its ups and downs and the MLG years and the back on Twitch years and so on. And um, it's really, when you look at the, the viewership numbers that COD has experienced and you look at um, the constant changeover and a lot of the very public issues that it's had um, between organizations and between players. It's something that didn't quite seem to fit that price tag. But, um, but that's, you know, at the end of the day, that's not for me to say. Not my money to spend. So it's one of those things of if there's clearly a significant number of organizations that felt it was worthwhile and dove in. You know, the most, the most telling thing to me was you had who, the person that basically was the poster child of Call of Duty Esports being Nade Shot, owner now of 100 Thieves, who made it very clear that he was not paying that much money for a Call of Duty franchise. And I was like, yep, that tells me all I need to know. <laughs> do, do, you think it, do you find it weird that usually like when, like how you're saying the uh, investors aren't, you know, you've seen reports that investors aren't necessarily happy with, you know, their return on their investment. Do you think that could be because we see so often like the people who own these entities like reporting their like own numbers, so we don't really know like what those what the true numbers are? Um, I mean, it could be a lot of things. I think at this at that point, it's basically just kind of speculation. Um, whether it be that you know there's funny numbers involved, whether whether they were oversold on what on what the um, what their returns would be, or how quick their returns would be, or, or what, you know, that's that's on them. But I think there's a lot of potential reasons why they could be upset. Um, there, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, fortunately, there's been Owl has been at least structurally relatively stable. Um, we've only had one organization or one ownership uh, group changeover uh, in the Outlaws, but outside of that. You know, I think it'll be very interesting to see sort of moving forward uh, because like, let's be real, in terms of the constant traveling and everything else, costs are going to go up. And if costs are going up, that means organizations need to be making more money to try and offset those costs. So part of why I say like this year is going to be really critical is, you know, even just in terms of like financial sustainability, organizations now need to really start churning some revenue. Um, whether that be through homestands or anything else, but if they, you know, if, if there doesn't seem to be a, a workable revenue model, and this is just, you know, esports at large, then people aren't going to stay involved. Do you see? Do you see like, in a way of making that up? Do you see them increasing prices of tickets and stuff like? Because remember when they were at 
the Blizzard Arena was, I think it was like, what, $25 for the day? Do you see that kind of becoming like a $100 ticket for the day? Do you see that becoming... I mean, it could be, generally speaking, if you look at traditional sports, ticket prices are a very small percentage of the revenue share. Um, Your biggest chunk being media rights. Um, Beyond that, you have your merchandising, your sponsorships, and so on. Um, Sponsorship revenue right now, uh, I believe, was last reported at being about 40% of total revenue, um, which is high. Okay. Now, that said, you obviously have to try and engage non-endemic sponsors, which fortunately in the last year have been increasingly moving over to esports. Um, but at the end of the day, with non-endemic sponsors, there's a lot of legwork that goes into sort of converting them over. Um, and a lot of explaining what has to go in and a lot of even just explaining what the return on investment could be and clarifying that. I mean, I'm surprised that like Bud Light, Coca-Cola, um, Toyota, who else? I mean, like even like some of the the local, like like even like even the local teams, like the Outlaws have like AGV or have I don't know mm-hmm. what they say. I have a friend from Texas. She was like, she was telling me what it is, and I'm always like, I don't know what it is. Um, I mean, I feel like once you get like those kind of bigger names, I think I guess that kind of seals the deal. Do you think, or do you think like that's going to be like the convince? Do you think that's the convincing argument for more sponsors? Like, eh, you know, Toyota's it's, there. It's part of it, right? Because no one wants to be the first kid in the pool, so to speak, when it comes to sponsorship because it's there's something to be said about other smart people with money being involved, right? Because you, you can turn and say, well, they're doing it, and they're doing it, and they're doing it. That'll help, but that's not going to necessarily seal the deal, right? right? You know, They're going to say, all right, well, what's our ROI going to be if we're spending... X amount of dollars a month on sponsorship. You know, what are you exposing us to? What does our exposure look like? Um, you know, on and on and on and on and on. And then you're going to need also some help in terms of just understanding the space because if they're not too familiar with activating primarily on a digital platform, then that unto itself also has to be the education, right? Is hey, this is how a lot of this is what a lot of sponsorships in esports tend to look like, right? Like we'll do the rotating banners on stream. We'll do on on header advertising, on jersey advertising, on and on and on and on and on. Um, so there's there's several different layers that have to go in, that are involved in um, several different layers of education that go into sort of that conversion of the non-endemic sponsor to make them an endemic sponsor. And that is a oftentimes a very steep hill to climb so this is this is a weird i think i think tori and i got into this one time um do you think that like in, in like bud light becoming out like a big sponsor for owl do you think that kind of solidified sort of owl saying we're not we're trying to like we're away from the kids this is for the mid-20s do you think that was them targeting like that demographic and kind of leaving behind the youngins um um, For lack of a better word, like young Indy or whatever. I mean, I'm certainly not a sponsorship expert, right? Um, but I don't necessarily think so. Um, I do think in a lot of ways that helps to continue the parallel to, of OWL to traditional sports, mm-hmm. where we have, you know, the, the, the official beer of, you know, the NFL and so on. Um, and then we'll get into, like, even more niche you know, the official tequila of the New York Mets and so on. Uh, yeah, as, as things 
dwindle down, right? Uh, because you have your league side partnerships and then you're allowed certain um, franchise partnerships beneath that. But um, yeah, I don't see that as necessarily saying, no, kids stay away. But I do see that as, yes, that does engage more of the older audience. You know, so it, it may be less of a nod of like keeping people away and more so more towards just tapping on a part of their audience. Listen, The Rock is coming out with a tequila in March. Can he just throw, <laughs> can he sponsor something? I don't care if it's Call of Duty. Just throw your name in there. Be like, here's my tequila. Um, Call of Duty kids do not need tequila. I can tell you right now. So um, they do need Mountain Dew. They do. Speaking yes. of, uh, speaking of youngins, you know, you you have a kid. Yes. How do you feel? about because i think we're coming up on this new generation of like almost sort of fandom mm-hmm. how growing up as a kid you have like me growing up as a kid my, my dad was like it was like it was giants yankees and being like okay so you're a giant you're a giants fan now mm-hmm. you're a yankees fan do you think we're going to start to see now we're having these esports and we're going to see like well you're an la gladiators fan now you're a <laughs> you know you're a new york subliners god i hate that name so much <laughs> someone's gonna come and be like hey what'd you say yeah um but do you think we're gonna see that and and obviously i'm not gonna say you're gonna be taking baby photos of your child in the new york excelsior jersey like crawling around <laughs> and stuff but do you see that change do you, do you see now that because this is sort of like this is their team like for people are it's like oh this is my team now this is my new york mess or my new york jets yeah, I, mean, I don't see any reason why there wouldn't be, um, because I think you know sort of that indoctrination process is no different. Um, you know, realistic. Like I'm a Mets fan, very long-suffering Mets fan. So sorry. And um, the like, I know that you know, in terms of how my kid first encounters baseball, is going to be watching Mets games. You know. Um, and generally speaking, that's what starts that indoctrination process, right? Is like, this is what we know. This is who we kind of stick with. Then some change over and so on. But um, I don't see any real reason why esports will be any different. Um, especially if, uh, I mean, I guess on the one hand, it can be considering you may have a more broad viewing experience, right? Like if you're watching, if, if let's say I'm a... TSM fan, right? And I'm watching, you know, LCS, and realistically, that I'm watching multiple games in a night, as opposed to just watching my team's game. Then, yeah, you have a broader experience. Realistically, that may be that may lead to more diverging alliances, uh, as opposed to like traditional sports where it's like I'm not going to watch a Yankees game. Because like that's that's blasphemous, <laughs> but um, seven rings. But yeah, see, so so real, yeah. The, you're, you're, I'll take back what I said to an extent, <laughs> in the sense that um, I, I feel like as esports fans, we tend to watch a lot more than just who our team is. Um, so that could potentially lead to more diverging sort of alliances. I, I think it's also because we see a lot of more people follow players as well than just... I mean, yeah, you get people yeah. who are like, oh, you know, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm like Piazza, whatever. That's, see, that's all I know about the Mets. Because <laughs> if I had to pick a team, it's Yankees, I'm sorry. Um, Not everyone's perfect. But if, <laughs> listen, <laughs> uh, I try my every day. You know, I wake up, I'm like, I'm still a Giants fan, so it's okay. Um, so you have a ebook on your website, uh, esports.law, the little handbook, or excuse me, the little legal handbook for uh, esports teams. Yes. 
do you make that like a must read before you help any of your clients like hey no no <laughs> not at all um realistically i i created that at least version one many years ago um just as a resource because especially at the time there's a lot of there was a big sentiment of like i don't need a lawyer or i can't afford an attorney um and i'm just going to try and do this all myself but then what was happening was later down the, they'd make enough mistakes in the early stage that then when shit hit the fan a little while a little ways down the road it becomes that much more difficult and that much more even just expensive to fix a lot of those early stage issues so i created that book as just a a resource saying like look you know even if you don't want to let's say use me to help create your organization then these are some things that you need to be aware of in terms of how you go about creating your team um, in any sort of remotely appropriate manner. You know, now, obviously, it, it's, I believe it's like 32 pages, um, so it's not going to cover every nuanced thing that, that you're going to possibly need to know, but it covers a lot of the basics and is really more of an introduction than anything else. Um, it's, it's really hard to know what you don't know so that was a way of saying, hey, you probably don't know this. You should know something about this. you I have. Um, last year, I believe we put out a, an added chapter and revised a little bit. Um, it's something that, you know, along the way, we'll probably add a little bit here and there. It's something that, you no know. plans to turn it into like a... Like a, like a nice stack book that you can go to the Amazon like bookstore and just pick it up and be like, that's what I need. I mean, it's something that there's a lot of variables to. And that's, that's really where the problem lies um, in terms of trying to do it all on your own. And even just in trying to create something that would be like a one-stop shop resource, right? Is there's so many different variables involved. Um, like I've had people hit me up after reading the book from... Turkey, um, Latin, like small countries in Latin America, even even a couple of countries in Africa, where the legal system unto itself is vastly different. Even something as simple as like there's a chapter in that ebook that talks about like the different types of business entities involved. The business entities are completely different, where you know in those countries as well. So there's there's a very 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 vast amount of information that would have to be covered to go into something like that, which would be a job unto itself. Um, you know, I do try and um, I try and, and post some informational blog posts as sort of like a supplementary thing to that um, and share that stuff out there. But but yeah, I, I guess no no solid plans to turn it into like a compendium at this point. Um, so like with, with teams you know, giving players legal advice, you know, unbeknownst to like the player, you know, knowing anything. Have you ever seen like uh, leads giving legal advice to players that might have not been, you know, best for the player? Leagues tend to stay out of it um, because they don't want to be liable. Um, the leagues also have their own attorneys and everything else. So they tend to be a lot smarter about those decisions in terms of just being like, nope, not us. We'll let the player and team sort that out or we'll let the player sort it out with whoever. And they'll tell them that. And they'll say like, yeah, this isn't our issue. Like you need to go handle this on your own. 
It's the idea when like a team does something fucked up, they're like, dude, I don't know, man. What happened? <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, leagues don't want to be responsible for the actions of anyone or any business outside of the league. It's plausible deniability. So, in doing my research, mm-hmm. I found out that you played. What a nerd. You, you bowled in high school. <laughs> Were you very competitive and like. I'm still very competitive in bowling. So, following that, <laughs> you, try to, you try to throw down right now? Have you Always. ever considered like maybe you could do the esports thing or are you kind of just like to, to feed that competitive side or is it kind of just like I'll stick to bowling? So, for me and, and playing esports, I still play a lot of games. Um, both for fun and competitively. The only game I've ever played relatively competitively, and I say that just in, from like the sweaty couch player perspective, I've never entered into a tournament, was, um, was Call of Duty. I've had the opportunity to play with some pros, or I guess they were pros back then, I think they've left since. Um, so I, and I got my headshots in, so I was very proud of that. But, um, you know, outside of that, like, I don't have the time to just sit and grind for eight hours a day. But um, I guess competitive, other competitive. I played competitive Pokemon when I was eleven. Like card game or video no, game? no, Blue. Okay. <laughs> Blue. Back when uh, Nintendo did a, uh, I think it was the year after or two years after Red and Blue first came out. They did like a tour of like malls. Yeah. 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 That was that was back in the day. Mm-hmm. 10, 11 years old, yep. going to the mall for something or a mall tour. Exactly. No, that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> no. There are no malls. There's malls. They, they do go to their Pokestops. That, that is true. I mean, yeah, but it doesn't count. But um, the most you get is you go to the Nintendo store for stuff. Yeah. But when it comes to playing like a lot of competitive esports, I try not to just because me playing games was always me like getting away from work. <laughs> so it's one of those situations of like you know you make pizza all day you don't want to go home and order pizza for dinner um, but I still play a ton of games Call of Duty being the only like eSport that I still relatively play often um, and I still bowl every Thursday night <laughs> do you do you see kind of a this is a little off but it's kind of similar mm-hmm. for your for player base do you see a little bit different of an attitude depending on what sort of video game background they're coming from like if you have like if an FGC player if you have a shooter player if you have like a, like a league player do you see a little bit difference in their ego and their, their attitude are they like absolutely more sociable or yeah 1000% are they scary <laughs> <laughs> every every game brings its own community right, right. And, and that community has its own demographics and those demographics shift and they shift pretty significantly depending on the games that you're looking at um, you do see attitudes different, differ, you do see uh, backgrounds differ, you do see levels of scariness, as you said, differ. Um, but that's part of what makes it fun, you know, like there's something for everyone. Have you ever baited any players into uh, challenge you into bowling? <laughs> into bowling, though. Bowling, I, I try, that's, my, that's my one thing that I try and keep my work away from play. That way, I'm like, I don't have to worry about esports for those three hours that I'm like, you know, in my league every week. Although I did, someone did, someone did walk into my league last year wearing a C9 jersey, 
And I was like, oh my God, I can't escape. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, had, I only asked that because like when we uh, like go to PAX East, um, mm-hmm. we always end up at, uh, what is it, Lucky Strikes? Yes. And they always have bowling. they always have like an yeah. after party. Like, and I was just curious, like, Strike, yeah, I was just curious like, if you've ever been there or like any event and like, they're like, hey, we're going bowling. You're like, yeah. So does that, does that bother you with like, you go to like a Lucky Strike <laughs> and you see like a group like teenagers and they're all just like, just dicking around and just like not playing I mean, right. You're just like, come on, <laughs> no, I, play that, right. It's one of those things of like, you know, it, there's something for it for everyone. So it's like if you want to be like, you know, super casual and just like truly the most neutral answer. <laughs> but it's true, you know. Like, look, am I gonna do it? No. You know, did I go to one of the after parties for League of Legends at? Uh, when it was at the garden mm-hmm. at Bolmar mm-hmm. and bowl and bowl without my stuff which always hurts my soul but <laughs> did I you know was I still hooking the lane absolutely you know <laughs> it's something it's something that like you know that's always how I'm gonna take to it but if, if I'm bowling with people that you know don't bowl you know it, I, it's not gonna it's not gonna hurt my soul. I mean, I think I think just in any career, like even with esports, having a, a side hobby to get away from it. Oh is yeah, the best. absolutely. Um, and it's funny because I always there's a lot of like esports players that are always like, yeah, my side hobby is uh, streaming. Wait, what? That's not. <laughs> no, no, that, that's yeah. an extension of your game's word. over. I'm gonna exactly. go home and uh, stream. Like, I'm streaming tonight at nine o'clock. Watch me. It's like, wait, no. Right. You know, and, and like, and that's something that I've always reiterated to my players too is like, you need something that is away from what you're doing for work just for your sanity even even if it's still video games but it's different kinds of video games right you know like i have one of my guys really like we, i discovered that he really likes rpgs as do i so tokyo mirage sessions you know so we'll we'll just talk about like they'll be you know we'll talk business and we're like all right so have you played fallout 76 yeah what do you think or we you know what what are you playing nowadays and you're kind of going into that you know it's they like to play games anyway do something different you know keep your if you don't you're going to burn out if you burn out you're not going to be as good as you'd like to be which is then going to make you burn out more so take your time take your time off take your time away from the work and the games and just be and enjoy yourself you know whatever that means to you that's a good life like even just like whether you're playing video games for a living whether you're, you're an attorney, a nurse, if you're Troy. <laughs> yeah, my career's not that special. <laughs> Listen, my, my, big, uh, my big downtime activity for the last month has been Pokemon and picking up Sword and then just being like, all right, screw it, let's do raids for three hours. Oh, you're playing, you're playing Sword? Yeah. Okay. Good man. Good man. Good man. You excited for the DLC? Uh, interested to see what the DLC is going to look like. Actually, how do you feel about a lot of people being like, this is bullshit. So, okay. I didn't pay for like a whole, like, how do you feel about that whole so, the negative side of Pokemon right now? Because there's I mean, a lot of there's, people. There was a lot of negative side of Pokemon even just leading up to Sword and Shield. Right. Um, I was really hesitant as a result. To, to play because everyone just dogging it and um, they're like oh it's so easy and on and on and on which they were right but then I actually enjoyed playing it right so I was like there's definitely things here that I haven't gotten from previous Pokemon games that I actually like and there are several like just quality of life upgrades that they've made that are significantly different yeah. I mean the last game the last Pokemon game I played before Sword was X and Y no, not even that. Not like uh, black and white. Okay. The only generation that I skipped was the Ruby Sapphire. The um, 
but yeah, so I mean, it, I actually enjoyed it, and I was like, okay, this is an enjoyable experience. Is it pathetically easy? One thousand percent. But it's there's something just kind of zen about just being like, all right, I need this Pokemon. I'm gonna go run around the grass over here until he comes out. And I'm gonna I mean, him. I saw a, a streamer tweeted out this morning. She goes, she goes, she goes. I've hatched 250 eggs. Still haven't gotten this. All right, we're streaming tonight, guys. Nine o'clock. <laughs> I'm just like that's, that's yeah, I that's your you. life. I mean, listen, good mm-hmm. for you. But um, as far as the DLC goes, I'm glad that they're adding to the game as opposed to having just the third edition again. Right. Um, well, they're saying that this is allegedly in place of a third edition. Right. I think it's a better model, and I think, I'm glad at least that the Switch can actually incorporate that, yeah. as opposed to like what the, game, the limitations that like Game Boy and DS had. Um, so I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I would like it to be something that they continue to do, beyond just you know the, this one-off thing. Um, keep it a game that just lives and evolves over time. I have no problem with that, you know, even if it's at the cost of whatever the expansion pass is. So, so you said you're a fan of RPGs. Is that, is that yes. just like the Fallout, Skyrim sort of things? Are you more so like turn-based? JRPGs. Yes. Yes. I gotta know. Because like my the game that like literally still sits in in my my home. Uh, my mother's home, my mother's home, what accent just came up, back in, back in Long Island, mm-hmm. um, is Legend of Dragoon, just yep, still perfectly, just like, mid- and a lot of people are like, it's not even that great of a game, I'm like, you shut your mouth. That is a good game. And I'm like, it's, it's my game. What that. is, what is your, quote unquote, game that like, that like, not, not like, oh, your first game, or anything, yeah. just like the game that like, if you just went on eBay every now and then, you're like, how much is this? So there's one game that I own multiple copies of. Okay. The only game I own multiple copies of is Final Fantasy VII. There it is. How do you feel about the remake? And also, how do you feel about the remake being delayed? Uh, I'm fine with it being delayed. It just changes the days I have to take off work. <laughs> um, which, fortunately, I'm my own boss, so I get to change when I want to work. Yeah. But, um, Don't tell his wife. No, no, she knows. Yeah. That one of the fortunate things, one of the fortunate things about working in esports is like the wife can no longer give me crap about playing games because she'll come in and she'll be like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "Research." Yeah, it's research. It's what it is. Babe. But um, babies in the papoose, just like research. <laughs> Listen, the the night my son was born, oh, no. I introduced him <laughs> to what I said was the second most important man in his life, which was Super Mario. <laughs> I had um, I had my switch at the hospital. He sat in my lap, and I was like, "Showed him Odyssey." Did you see? This is very off topic. Did you see that tweet that somebody was like, "Yeah," they were like, "How old is Mario? Uh, who's older, Mario or Luigi?" And like Nintendo was like, "Mario's older, but only by like three minutes because they're twins." twins. And somebody was like, "They're twins." <laughs> I did end up seeing that. And I was just like, I didn't see that, but I thought I knew that. I never knew that. I thought I knew I'm that. I'm not that deep into that lore. I was playing Altered Beast as a child. <laughs> Mario lore runs very deep. Yeah. Very, like a lot of people were like, what were you playing? I played Mario. I played Altered Beast. That's Altered a little Beast violent for a child. <laughs> I, played, I used to play Altered Beast at my cousin's house. I never had it. But, um, but yeah. So this is this is like a little bit more on topic question. Um, how do you feel about like now that esports is sort of like branching out and they're sort of Cornering this market in this in, in some way of like a in like the streetwear sort of mm-hmm. style. Do you think that that's like boxing them into a corner, or do you really feel, or do you feel like they can back out whatever they want? I think, or do you feel like they're they're kind of pushing some fans away with that? 
because I did hear I was I was at PAX one time, and as you could tell, I dressed very, you know, <laughs> you know, streetwear, whatever, mm-hmm. and I was wearing. Um, like like some a random streetwear company and then like a beanie and like joggers and some mm. kid walked by me and he was just like oh, you see they're the guys that are ruining gaming for us and I was like what the <laughs> fuck <laughs> do you feel that like the the streetwear guys the hype beast guys are like is that how do we break that stigma because I don't think you think that they're ruining gaming unless you do no. and I'm like oh shit well I no, gotta go not at all I think I think there's a place for everyone in gaming. Right, like there's, which is part of why we have like the Paxes, the Twitchcons, and so on. Um, as far as streetwear goes, I think it's smart because it's engaging a part of the community that was already in the community and just going elsewhere for that for those items, right? So it's why would you if you can service them directly, why have them go elsewhere? Well, I you think know, those, those people also just. They want to stay like under the radar, like I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> but also, it's, I think too, you know, from the organizational side, it's smart just in terms of diversifying, right. you know, and growing the brand. Because realistically, then if you're growing your brand, then you're building more brand equity. Then there's a level of cool to you and a level of actual brand identity, which brand identity then helps in terms of pitching a story to a sponsor. Because sponsors care about your brand identity because they want to know what you stand for. So if you have an, a brand identity that aligns with what their brand identity is, it makes a lot more sense just from a, a story perspective of how you can activate that together. And it helps start bridging that gap of, hey, you're an endemic, but hey, I'm like you. Right. I mean, it's like it's like when they had when like uh, Zed, the the DJ Zed, he he worked in New York Excelsior jersey. That everyone was like, "Holy shit!" And then like it became this whole thing. And then they really yeah. pushed on that for for like a month or two straight. Mm-hmm. Just like, and I guess that was also, as you said, like a way and means of pitching it to other people. Like, look, yeah, fucking, you got this multi million dollar DJ. What's up? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, mean, I think um, org diversification is smart, right? Because even if one, it's a revenue stream when there is no quote-unquote model for what a successful esports organization revenue system looks like. Um, it's also just diversification, right? Like, let's say the team goes up and if if a hundred thieves goes up as an organization goes up in flames tomorrow, it can still continue on its streetwear brand, realistically, yeah. um, because that exists separately though tied to the esports org. So it's 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 smart. I mean, I, I don't see it as I, for the people that that are concerned about you know ruining gaming by involving streetwear. It's like realistically, there are way bigger concerns that you should have about things that are ruining gaming. Yeah, you know, you want to talk about like monetizing like everything. You know, how about start with that as being a concern as opposed to. Just um, you know, just creating some clothes. Is there anything um, in this coming year that you're looking forward to, esports-wise? <laughs> just, just no. That's a hard one. Um, I'm really interested to see what the how how the home stands go. You know, with respect to Owl and Cod. I think um, 
it's an interesting experiment. Um, I'm, it, if it's successful, then you know certainly I think we can see probably a lot more of that globally, um, or a lot more adoption or attempts at adoption of, of that home and away sort of model. Um, so in that sense, it's it's I'll be I'll be closely watching just to see how that goes because I think that can be a if it goes very well that can certainly shift things. How do you feel about um, Philadelphia Fusion building a whole ass stadium for this? They got the money. I mean, true, but like, <laughs> do you think event, like if if it goes up in flames, what are we doing with that that space? Just tearing it down? Like, I don't know. I mean, my understanding is the space is multi-purpose, so there's going to be other things going on there other than sports, right? Like, you're not going to build a stadium and then just have a couple home stands there and have it sit empty the rest of the time. You know, I'm sure there'll be... God, know, I hope not. No. <laughs> Let's flash yeah. forward to like six months and I'm just like, damn it, they didn't do anything. Yeah, I mean, realistically, I think they... Um, they I mean, the, the corporate body behind the fusion being Comcast has a ton of experience with respect to its operations, sports, venues, uh, since they have, obviously, the Blackhawks and as well as that stadium there. So I think they have a decent idea as to what they're going to be doing with the space. Um, and I, I mean, realistically, I don't think it's, it was that terrible of an idea, um, especially if they felt that they didn't have a suitable venue otherwise. I mean, I'm not, being a very tried and true New Yorker, I'm not super familiar with the ongoing things in Philadelphia. Yeah, but, um, they got a good market. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly have a good market. It, you know, in terms of spaces, no idea. Uh, in terms of whether or not, the, and even if they have spaces, Lord knows, you know, if they're even available. I mean, I, I think it's also, especially in New York, it's super hard, I think, too. Yeah. Like, if they wanted to build a place, it'd be super hard. Because, A, we have, like, how many freaking event spaces, arenas, we have Broadway. It's like, where are you going to put these people? And then it's like, I'm sad by Yeah. How that, do you feel about that? <laughs> that was an interesting one. Um, I mean, I guess. I was half expecting it to be the PlayStation Theater. Yeah, it could be. But then they were like, I'm just not involved. It might be too Get small. Get your tickets. And I'm like, eh. PlayStation Theater might be too small. Um, I think the interesting thing is, and correct me if I'm wrong, none of the sports team owners are using their sports facilities for the actual home yes. games, which I guess kind of makes sense just from a perspective that it probably costs more to operate that big facility. Right. That it would be to you know lease out whatever whatever facility they're going to be using for these games. Yeah, I mean the only time that we ever saw them, well maybe I'm I'm probably wrong, but somebody will correct me. <clears throat> and my voice disappeared. Um, is like the uh, New York Mets. They used uh, City Field for just right. like meeting greets. Yeah, yeah. Like one or two times for the team for New York Excelsior, mm -hmm. but I haven't really seen much else. I mean, like I've seen like the Rams like invite out uh, like gladiator players and stuff like, that, but I haven't seen much else like. Co-mingling yeah. of stuff like that, and do you think we'll ever see that? Do you think we deserve to see that more? Do you think that's how these, or do you actually think that's how these organizations and these team owners are going to kind of get some of their money back by having some of these esports players get involved in real sports? Or like, is this their, is that a good play? I don't see why you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, realistically, there is going to be some overlap. Um, 
So I don't see, especially if you have both properties, there's no real reason not to try and leverage them together, even if it's just like one-off events here and there. Mm. Um, or even just to, just to see if you can get, you know, garner additional fan base. You know, it's, it, it wouldn't make sense not to. You know, at the same point, you don't want to go so far that, you know, you're showing up to the football game and, you know, you have your very, very conservative football fans just being like, why the hell are these nerds on the field? <laughs> um, but, you know, at the same point, there are, there are, there is some demo overlap, so you might want to, you might want to engage both and see in some capacity or another. It doesn't have to ha be having people there. It can be signage. It can be you know, a lot of little different things and sort of measure that along the way and see if there's some interesting sort of collabs that you want to do. That being said, Dana White, buy an esports team. UFC, esports, do it. Make it happen. I want to see that happen with streamers before I see esports players. I want to see streamers fight. I mean, we already have YouTubers <laughs> fighting. Yeah. You had the whole KSI, Logan Paul, and then you had the KSI, Logan Paul too. That's true. Well, I have no further questions. I don't know. If, have you exhausted all your questions, Henry? Have I exhausted all my <laughs> questions? No. I mean, I guess like, what's your biggest advice for, you know, you got to go with that cliche, like what's your biggest advice for esports players looking for, because we always say on the show, like count your money, read your contracts. And do you have anything else to add to that? Taxes. And do your taxes. God, do your taxes. Those are, those are, those are very solid points. Um, for players, I think it's understand that you are a business unto yourself and you should be you should treat yourself as such um that plays into the read your contracts that plays into the do your taxes it also plays into be smart about everything that you do um you're a brand you're a business you need to be very careful about how you put yourself forward you need to be very careful about who you're working with and who's working with you um the deals that you're entering into um, and, you know, and build a team around you, you know, whether that be your own team in terms of advisors, that's attorneys, that's agents, that's uh, CPAs, that's uh, wealth advisors, and so on. Henry, I will allow you to do the honors of closing us out. Yes. He, al he always gets on me about not letting him close out, and I did an interview without him, so... <laughs> First of all, Roger, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank we you for having it, me. Seriously. Um, guys, you've listened to Till Good Game Do Us Part. Thank you so much for listening as usual. It's me, Henry, a.k.a. Medium Ugly, joined by Troy, a.k.a. Shit, I don't got to... You, you know what? Velvet Thunder. There it is. Velvet Thunder. <laughs> Roger, a.k.a. I don't know. What do you, you want an AKA? <laughs> no, I'm good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> as usual, you guys can follow us uh, at Till Game, Till GG Do Us Part on Twitter. You can follow me at H Frank on all the socials. Troy, they can follow you somewhere. Troy Sif on Twitter underscore. And Roger, where can people follow you if they want to DM you questions about esports? Uh, they can follow me at, at Roger Quiles, so R O G E R Q U I L E S on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for listening. <laughs>